11. Actually, it's going to be a whole uh, compilation of texts. You can go there. You can go to Psalm 51. You can go to Psalm 32. What's that? What? Oh, yeah. By the way, Jackson, get over here. Jackson is also a guy I want you to know. He's uh, my intern, and he's also working with the students. Um, and so Jackson was with us last year. Um, and uh, again, a huge gift uh, to this church, particularly to the students. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> okay, some of you guys have been saying how much you've been liking the David series this summer. And um, I think... A large part of that is just because we see how the Bible is so raw and so real. And we're going to really see that this morning. Um, I have compiled the text that we're looking at, because there's a number of them, into one text. And so I have that on PowerPoint this morning. Uh, Let's stand and read God's Word. In the spring... At that time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David stayed in Jerusalem. One evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he slept with her. And she went back home. The woman conceived. She sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, his general. Send me Uriah, the Hittite. And Joab sent him. To David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down now to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, but he did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And I think Uriah knows everything that's going on. Starting with, David, why are you not with us where you belong? And why do you get to sit in your palace? And I think he even knows what David has done. Listen to what he said. Uriah said to David, The box, the ark, and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men, we are camped in the open country. How could I go to the house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, David wrote, Send Uriah to the front lines where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so he can be cut down and die. 
even the general knows this is such a dumb idea, and it's so obvious to all what is going on, that he has to be a little more sneaky about it. Not just does Uriah die, but also many of David's best fighting men die as a result. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David sent for her, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then the next chapter, I hope you've seen the word sent, sent, sent. David as the king thinks he's controlling and manipulating everything. And the next chapter begins, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan, through a brilliant story, exposes David's sin, all of it. And David then prays this prayer in Psalm 51. And maybe right now you just need to go from being a learner to being a worshiper. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from all my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And you desire truth even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your, from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, for you are God my Savior. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasures in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. This is God's word. Be seated. I think it's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. I want to just start by, by, by considering what David has done. I mean, at face value, it's, it's, it's very disappointing. He has a one-night fling with a woman whose name is Bathsheba. Let me give you some biblical data on Bathsheba. One, we know she's married. But let me start with her grandpa. Her grandpa is Ahitophel. Ahitophel is one of David's best friends and chief advisors. Her dad, Eliam, is one of the highest ranking soldiers in David's army, one of David's mighty men. The mighty men are these guys that are listed in, in Second Chronicles. There's 30 in all. These are Israel's champions who have done great things. They are very valuable to Israel. That's her dad. 
Her husband is Uriah. Uriah is also one of David's mighty men, one of these elite 30. So Bathsheba is part of this elite military family. And also remember that these mighty men uh, first come to David when David's life is in the pit, when he's running from Saul, and they surround uh, David. They come to him. They become loyal to him. These are David's best friends. And so people ask me, did, did David know Bathsheba before this night? Of course he did. He knew he was sleeping with one of his best friend's granddaughter. He knew he was sleeping with one of his best friend's daughter. He knew he was sleeping with one of his best friend's wife. And not only did he do this, but to me the most disappointing thing in David is is not the one-time act, which is horrible in and of itself, but how he tries to cover it up. And everything he does, lives are lost through his cover-up. His whole life has become a lie. He's a fake, a phony. Now the question when you hear stuff like this is how could someone like David do this? Well, I remember when I was first starting ministry and a lot of big name pastors were biting it. These were, these were guys that I looked up to. And I'll never forget John Piper uh, coming to this, this event in which I was at to speak. And even before he uh, got to the platform, when people saw him rise and walking down the aisle, just this standing ovation started to take place. And I'll never forget what John Piper said about halfway through his message that day. He said, the sediments of pride and self-sufficiency and lust lie at the bottom of every good man's heart. He said, even those who we consider to be the best of the best, he says, be careful who you put on a pedestal in praise because there are only sinners in the world. I'll never forget that. Because I knew exactly what John Piper was saying. Be, fi- be careful of who you applaud for. Don't praise me. I'm just a sinner. I think this is one of the reasons why I can read the Bible and, and, and trust it. Because it never flatters its heroes. It never tries to cover up their mistakes or, or gloss over the things that they've done. Uh, through every chapter, it seems like even the heroes scream at us that there are only sinners in the world. And I think the moment that we, any one of us looks at David's sin... And starts to, to, to think, you know, I, how could he do this as if I would never be capable of such a thing? We are in a very dangerous place. 
Now we saw weeks ago that David allowed the seeds of lust to come into his, to his life. And rather than rooting them out, he, he, he nurtures those seeds. And those seeds soon begin to take root and they begin to grow. And he starts looking at other women and, and taking other women into his, into his harem. And, and soon the, the seed becomes a sapling. And then he adds another wife and, and still another wife and, and another prostitute into his whole way of life. And it's not long before this seed becomes an oak tree. And it's a lot easier to pull out an acorn than it is to root out a great oak. David is no longer doing sin. Sin is now doing David. David has lost control. As the great Puritan John Owen put it, He said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Do you and I respect sin, even if it's a small acorn? Acorns can grow into oak trees. And I think most of us, if, if we knew David, we, we could look at David's life leading up to this and hardly detect what's brewing. Because on the outside, David's life looks great. He's, he's king of the land. His armies are expanding the empire. He, he's living in a newly built palace. In some ways, his life couldn't be better. He's probably also going to church, reading his Bible, praying, doing all those good things. But on the inside, David has forsaken his first love. His heart has become seduced by the tangible things of the world, power, wealth, comfort, status, things which over time will diminish anyone's love for God. In Psalm 27, verse 4, he says, there's just one thing that my heart seeks. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon his beauty. David's a long way from that. And I want us to see that David's heart is seduced long before Bathsheba seduces him. Because in forsaking the love and the beauty of God, David becomes easy prey to the love and beauty of another woman. This is how sin works. And this is what's going on in in David's life over a long season. This is how a man like David can fall so far and make such a mess of his life. He forsakes his first love. And in time, it all blows up. I don't even think David realizes the the, the train wreck course that his life is on. I think that this sin goes undetected even uh, in his own eyes. But see, this is why David's failure uh, should sound such a huge warning to all of us. If this can happen to a man after God's own heart, 
that can happen to any of us. Have you forsaken your first love? Do you love him? Can you say right now, one thing, one thing do I seek? And that's you, God, and your presence, and the gaze upon your beauty. Are there acorns or saplings or maybe even oak trees that have overtaken your life that need to be uprooted? It's, It's not too late. I'll tell you the best part of this story. It's consistent with why the Bible is the the, the best story in the world. David's broken life will be restored. Yes, it's going to be shattered into a million pieces, but God's going to put it all back together again. And to me, that's the real question. It's, it's not how can a guy like David sin. The real question is how can a life that is so ruined by sin be put back together? It's just like we, we, we learned as little kids when we heard Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We know that. And that's what our world has concluded. You make a mess of your life like this, and it's done. Story over. David has a God who passionately and almost recklessly loves David. And he will not let go of David. He will not give up on David. And he will pursue David. But for God to restore David, there's something on David's end that David needs to do. And the same for us. And this first thing that David needs to do, that we need to do, if there's any chance at restoration, if there's any chance at redemption, David needs to come clean. Guess what? David can't do this on his own. David needs help. David needs Nathan to come and and to expose him. Because for restoration to happen, the sin must be exposed. The sinner must be laid bare. God in his grace sends Nathan. Nathan really tells this, this, this brilliant story. I mean, David is in this place of cover-up. And, but Nathan comes. Because David can't see at this point... What he can't see, and it's, it's what sin does to us. It puts us in this place of, of, of self-deception. 
And uh, Nathan tells this story where he gets Nathan to see the, his grotesque sin in someone else. And he's so frustrated with this man that, that Nathan has described that he says, this man surely deserves to die. And Nathan then says, David, you're the man. You're the man. And now it's out. And David is exposed. And David's response from here is the blueprint to a restored life. Because David doesn't just show us how a person can make a mess of their life. David also shows us how a, how a life can be put back together by God. And I hate to simplify this, this complex thing that's occurred in David's life to one simple thing, but it all boils down to one make or break it response on our end if God is going to put our life back together. And, and he can do this even if you've made a train wreck of your life, even if your life has become such a mess. This one thing. God can use to put it all back together. It's repentance. Repentance is the secret to real change. Through genuine repentance, all the broken pieces of our life can be repaired, which is why repentance is at the heart of every sermon Jesus ever preached. Because the gospel plus repentance equals restoration. So I want to take you to Psalm 51. We read it. It's on page 457, if you have a Bible like mine. And I love the heading. It says, A Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is David's response. And I think Psalm 51 is probably the most complete picture of repentance in the Bible. This psalm is precious to me. There is not a psalm that I have not prayed more than this psalm. I want to start with verse 3 where David says, For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. The first aspect of repentance is this. I must know my sin. And the word for know there is, is yada. It's not just even know about my sin. But I must have this experiential knowledge of my sin. Or this personal encounter with it. Which means I need to have the, the courage to face my sin. Which means I need to empty out all my closets. This isn't just scratching the surface and, and, and looking at, at those obvious sins in our lives. In, in verse 7, and the ESV translates this correctly. David says, purge me, O God. Purge me. He's asking that God would literally perform surgery to, to, to literally cut him open and, and look at every aspect of his, of his life and of his heart. 
And so often we can see the sin, but we don't see the sin under the sin, or even harder yet, uh, the, the, the sin that, that's underneath all the good stuff in our life, the spiritual stuff. It, it, it's God, show me my selfish motives. Show me my pride. Show me where I'm jealous. Show me how I, how I need to control. Show me how I need to impress. Show me where, where I'm angry about things I shouldn't be angry about. God, show me my critical spirit. Show me these things. Purge me. And I love what David says in verse 4. He says, uh, the evil I have done, he calls it uh, evil that is done in your sight. See, the only way that we can really know our sin is to see see our sin the way God sees our sin. And I think so often we're tempted to make light of our sin. Or we're we're so often to see our sin the way our friends see our sin. Or... To look at our sin the way our culture might see our sin. But we need to see our sin the way God sees our sin. And see, this is how we can discern too between true guilt and false guilt. Because there are some people who come alongside of you and try to ease your guilt. But there are other people who are going to come alongside of you and make you feel guilty about things you really shouldn't feel guilty about. And this is why for me to really know my sin and for you to really know your sin, to come face to face with it, all of it, we need to hear God's word. We need to hear what God's word and and God's spirit working with his word has to say to our hearts about our sin. When's the last time you prayed to God? Search my heart, oh God. Know me and try me. Show me if there's any offensive way in me. Open the eyes of my heart, God. He'll do it. His spirit working with the word will will do it. And see, this is why we absolutely need Nathans in our life. People who love us so much that they're willing to call us out. I mean, we live in such a soft culture today, we can't handle the hard word anymore. But we need the hard word. I'm not exaggerating one bit when I say this, that I wouldn't be a pastor today if it weren't for the Nathans in my life. People who have spoken the hard word to me. Proverbs 27 says, Better is the open rebuke than love that is silent. Faithful are the, are the wounds of a friend. I just experienced this just in the last couple of weeks. How God used a brother in my life to speak, speak truth. To call me out on some things that I needed to be called out on. That's a true friend. We need Nathan's. The second aspect of repentance. I'll jump kind of towards the end of of David's confession to verse 17. Look at it. David makes a pretty strong statement there. He says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. And he says that because of what he says in the previous verse, which is the gutsy statement. He says, God, you don't delight in prayers. You don't delight in my, my, my worship. In this situation, what you delight in is a broken spirit, a broken, a contrite heart. 
contrition. It's part of repentance. In fact, the word for contrite here in, in this verse is, in Hebrew, the word daka, and daka simply means to be crushed. It's the same word that David uses in verse 8 when he says, let the bones, and that word bones could be translated bones, or it could even be broader than that, self. It could be the whole person. Let, let, let my whole person that you've crushed. <laughs> David's crushed. He's devastated. Does sin devastate you? Your sin, does it crush you? Today we just want to rescue ourselves and rescue each other from this feeling of being devastated and being, and being crushed, yet it's through the crushing and the devastation, not going around it, but through it, that a heart of stone can be turned into a heart of flesh. And I love how David prays this in verse 4. I know it sounds confusing because... He has really offended a lot of people and hurt a lot of people. But in verse 4, David says, against you, you only, have I done what is wrong. And that whole doubling of the you, he doesn't just say against you, but against you, you. Anytime you see that doubling in scripture, Absalom, Absalom, uh, Martha, Martha, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it signifies this intense love. And this is why David is devastated. It's not because he's been caught. It's not the consequences he's about to suffer. It's not because his reputation now is trash. David could say, you know, I have sinned against the people and it's hurt the kingdom. He could say, I've sinned against the law and I deserve death. He could say, I've sinned against myself and I've ruined my life. But he says, I have sinned against you, you. He intensely loves God, and his sin knows that it has hurt God. And that's what crushes David. I remember when I was in junior high, my, my older brother and I, we shared a bedroom together. He came home one night a little tipsy. I'd never seen anything like that in my life, you know, he... All of a sudden put his hand on the lamp and it just stayed there for a really long time. <laughs> um, but, but years after that, I'll never forget, he said to me, he said, Rod, I never did that again. And I said, why? He said, for one reason. He said, I love mom and dad too much. It's like, I never want to hurt them like I hurt them that night. When you sin, does it crush you? Does it hurt you when you say, I love my dad too much? And see, so much... Of, 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 of what we feel when we get caught is, is self-pity. And self-pity really is nothing more than heaping more selfishness on the sin of self. But here's, here's the deal. No one's going to change through self-pity. 
This is why Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Rod, do you love me? See, that's what crushes us. And see, God wants a crushed heart. David knows that. That's why David says what he says in these verses. He says, sacrifices and offerings or, or, or prayers and, and, and going to church, that's not what you want in this situation. What you want is for my, my heart to be crushed. That's what repentance involves, a crushed heart. The third aspect of repentance is I must own my sin. And take full responsibility for it. Look at verse 6. David prays. He says, you desire truth in the inward parts. I love this because this is David uh, acknowledging to God, God, I I know what I should be. I, I should be a man of integrity, a man of authenticity, where my private and my public me are the, are the same. But where you desire this integrity... There's only deceit. And see here David is taking full responsibility for his sin. He's he's not making excuses. He's not blaming circumstances or other people. He's not saying some demon uh, came on me and, and caused me to do it. In fact, as we learned last week, David is the new Adam and he's placed in the garden, the new Eden, to rule and to subdue God's world for God. And like Adam, he could not say no to the forbidden fruit. And like Adam, he fails. But unlike Adam, David isn't saying here, but that woman that you gave to me, she kind of made me eat it. David takes full responsibility, full blame for his sin. And it's not because of circumstances that a person sins. It's not because someone else made us do do it that someone sins. It's not because of a demon that a person sins. We sin because of what's inside of here. Jesus said all sin proceeds from the human heart. He says that in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. And see, David knows this, which is why he's taking full responsibility for it. So it's not just that he knows his sin. It's not just that he's crushed by his sin. But in taking responsibility for my sin also means I'm going to leave it. I'm going to let go of it. I'm going to turn from it. And what David realizes, and you see this in this psalm, is that to do this, you can't do this out of your own human effort. David understands that he needs God's help. That's why he prays such radical things like he does in verse 10, where he says, God, create within me a new heart. And I want you to see what he's praying here. He's saying to God, God, my problem is that I have a heart problem. And it's not just that my heart needs healing. It's not just that my heart needs forgiving. It's not even that I need my heart to be restored. God, what I need you to do, I need you to literally rip out my old heart. And I need you to give me a new heart.
And then in verse 12, he says, God, I also need for you to restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now, we kind of think that David lost this joy because of, his, because of his sin. And to some extent, I think this might be true. But I'm going to contend it's the other way around. That David sinned because he lost the joy of the Lord. Because in Psalm 4, verse 7, David says, You have filled my heart with greater joy than when new grain and new wine abound. In other words, he's saying, God, you are my intense joy. And see, what happens is when God is not our ultimate joy, we are going to seek joy in other places, whether it be joy in another relationship, joy in sex, joy in pleasure, joy in our jobs, joy in buying things, joy in a sport, joy in this, joy in that. Because as human beings, we we can't live without joy because we've been made to enjoy God. See, this is how repentance is, is completed. It's, it's this return. And it's not just a return to a, to a standard. It's not even just a return from a bad path to a good path. It's a return to a relationship. Because it's not just God fix me and fix my life, but it's God, would you fix us? Because when you and I are good, when when that relationship is restored, everything then is restored. And this is what God does. You guys, he does it. He fixes the relationship. He, He... God restores David back to himself. And yet some of us today still can't repent. We, we, we still can't face our sin. We'd rather just cover it up. We'd, we'd rather just hide. We don't want to be crushed by it. We don't want to own it. Why? Why? Or let me ask it from this angle. How is it that David, after doing such evil, can confidently ask God for so much and then get so much from God? Because of the first verse of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your chesed. According to your chesed, God. Not because I'm so good. I can't make an appeal to myself. I have nothing that I can bring. My only appeal is to your character, God. To your heart of Hesed. Hesed is David's favorite word to describe God. It, it, it can't be contained in, in 
a word or words in our English language, I'll do my best to explain what hesed is. Hesed is the immovable, unchanging, unconditional, unmerited, forever love of God irrespective of who we are and what we have done. It is a love that you cannot earn. It is a love that you cannot merit. And it is forever. God has said for us, just because of God. It's the love of the Father that, 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 that David knows. And, and, and as a father, I know this love on a small scale. Bennett can tell you how often we, I get angry. Bennett can tell you how often I get frustrated. Right now I'm frustrating him by even saying this. <laughs> the love in my heart for my kids is immovable, unconditional, never changing. It's unmerited. I get it. That's how God loves us. And think about how much more we can know this love on this side of the cross. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave us his son. And and that son, Jesus, came to the world and he said, I've come to show you the love of my father and to restore you to my father's house as God's children. And see, this is who Jesus is. He is the invisible God made visible. In in Jesus, God shows himself. God literally uncovers himself. Jesus died uncovered. Because what Jesus is doing in his death is he's taking upon himself all the stuff that you and I are trying to cover. He took all the sin, all the guilt, all the shame upon himself. And he's uncovered in this way so that you and I can be covered with the love of God. Covered. And that's why David, after Psalm 51, and I can't go into much detail right now, but he writes a concluding psalm, um, an exclamation point psalm, Psalm 32, and it begins with this word, blessed. Blessed means to be wonderfully okay. It means total fulfillment. It means to be made whole. It means to be intrinsically right. And who is the one who's saying, I'm blessed? It's this one who's made a complete mess of his life. He says, I'm blessed. And in verse 5, he says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave not just my sin, but also the guilt of my sin. A complete forgiveness. And in verse 7, he says, you are my hiding place. David goes from hiding, from, from hiding from God to now he's hiding in God. Because here's the deal. When we hide ourselves in him, when we hide ourselves in Christ, we no longer have to cover ourselves. We no longer have to hide. We, we, we can lay bare our closets. We, we, we can have our lives and our sin exposed and laid bare See, the worst thing in our world is not our sin. The worst thing is the pride that keeps us from repenting. 
What would happen if followers of Jesus would get serious about sin and serious about laying it bare, serious about exposing our closets and, and, and bringing it all to Christ? Stop hiding. And to hide in him. Revival would take place. The church would be what the church is supposed to be. We'd be the most beautiful thing in the world. It's time, Crossroads, to stop hiding. It is. It's time to stop covering ourselves. And the only remedy for sin, the only remedy for shame, the only remedy for guilt is Jesus. This morning, the communion table is open. The communion table is the place where we come with our sin. And we lay it at the altar. And we we, we hand over our sin, and what we get is his righteousness, his life. It's a real meal. It's real food. Mikvah is another way of just saying, God, I repent. I repent for what my hands have done. I repent, Lord, for my heart and the things that it's willed and and felt. I repent for my feet. I repent of, of my thoughts and the things that I've said. I know this. There'll be a big party in heaven if just one person repents today. Just one. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for this life. A life that you redeemed. Because this man repented. True repentance. And God, that's what your gospel demands. As Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. We don't just repent one time, but we continually are repenting all the time. And so, God, right now, I'm just going to do a handoff right now to your Holy Spirit. And I'm going to ask your Holy Spirit, God, to take it from here. That your Holy Spirit, God, would open the eyes of our heart to see the acorns or the saplings or maybe even the oak trees that are in our lives. And, God, we have a place to bring it. I pray, God, that pride would not keep us from repenting today. Whatever repentance, whatever form it looks like, God, that there would be true repentance in this place for the glory of God, that you would beautify your bride so your bride could go from here and make your name great for the sake of Christ. And God, I'm going to start. God, I confess my sin of selfishness. God, of getting caught up in my own life. And I lay that before you, God. Thank you for convicting me of that. Thank you for your grace.